0: appreciate in that prayer our understanding of our own expectations. You have all been through this before. I know I have. You get that gift. You see the package, the box, the small thing, whatever size it is, and immediately you start wondering what's in the bag, what's in the box. And you can't help it. Your expectations have been launched, right? Hard to get those back now you start thinking about what's my game face going to be? What if what's in the box or in the bag isn't what I hope it is? Or, or even there's a negative aspect of this too. Sometimes there's something in there going, oh, I hope this isn't what I think it is. <laughs> Either way, we're walking into this with expectations and it's going to be one of these things where like, what is my reaction going to be? Those of you with young children, you've practiced this. <laughs> that is the sweetest, most beautiful thing I've ever seen. What is it? It's our expectations about what we're about to receive have been launched and they've been set. And then we end up walking into this territory where like, did I just demonstrate? I mean, sometimes it's true excitement. Sometimes it's bliss. Sometimes it's overwhelming. And the person, the gift giver knows, okay, I hit the spot. But sometimes they read into it and they're like, oh, you're not happy. No, 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 no. No, I'm good. I'm good. This is great. Then we try to backpedal. Because our expectations brought us somewhere that's hard to come back from. It's a very difficult thing to manage. It's part of our world. It's a part of the human existence. This isn't just an issue with us in our current context, but has been one ever since um, the fall of man. Probably, is this unreasonable or or hard to limit set of expectations? What do we do with those things? If we're not careful, but if we're honest, this even happens with how we relate to the Lord, his arrival in our life, his blessings, his instruction, his wisdom, his principles, all those things that our expectations of how he's going to come, like we just prayed, our expectations of how he's going to arrive are launched. And then it's difficult for us as even as children of God to get that back and go, wait, why did I react that way when he did something different than what I was expecting? Here's our key thought for this morning. I hope that this sticks with you. We'll revisit it by the time we're done here this morning. This is what I want us to think about. Until we learn to expect the God who is, we will continually be disappointed when we don't get the God we want. Now, the God who is is capital G. The God we want is small g because the one we want, if he's not the one who is, is not a real God. It's a false God. Now, this is no different for the person living, the uh, child of God, if you will, the children of God, the nation of Israel now split into the divided kingdoms of Israel in the north, Judah in the south, but it's no different for them as their expectations of who God was going to be were determined by the voices they were hearing from the writers, the prophets, that they were seeing on display. They had had the history of God bringing his people through the Red Sea, and so their expectations of, of who God is... We're set, but yet we find a people continually disappointing, disappointed with the fact that when God who is arrives as he is, isn't quite up to their standards all the time. They've heard from the voice of Jeremiah. They've heard, ah, Lord God, it's you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And they're like, check. That's what I like to hear. He's that strong. He's that mighty. He's that powerful. Daniel echoes, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are in, accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or stay to him. What have you done? No one can question God. In First Chronicles 29, we hear yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens. And in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. What the the eyes, the ears, the hearts, and the mind of the people of God in that time period were, ide- were looking for, what their hearts were craving, was a national identity, a national prosperity, a national representation that finally their kingdoms weren't going to flip-flop, they weren't going to go through these lulls, they weren't going to be attacked by their neighbors on all sides, they weren't going to be under constant threat. They wanted the arrival of their great and mighty God who would make all of those things disappear. Now you and I live in 2019. We live in America, so our expectations have been set as well. But we've been we've had our expectations set in a different context. We aren't living in that uh, 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 time of national crisis in the same way that Israel was, and so we need to examine our own expectations of God's promises based on the context in which we live. How does our experience? shape our perceived needs. Now, as we look to the Old Testament to explain some of these things, to help us interpret how we're supposed to approach the God who is, as we live in a New Testament context, we have to understand how these two things play out. It's been said that what the Old Testament has predicted, the New Testament has revealed. Or said a little bit differently what the Old Testament has concealed, the New Testament has revealed. Or even what the Old Testament contained, the New Testament explained. Cute, right? Now you got something to remember when you go home today. But it's much, it's much easier for us on this side of prophecy To see the fulfillment as being the Lord Jesus Christ based on everything that he was, based on everything that has been recorded for us in the pages of Scripture, looking backwards 2,000 years gives us an incredible advantage. As we see that as Isaiah was promising a, a child who would be born, and this is interesting to see the distinction. We're going to see two things in this passage. That a child is born, which means that there's a human element to this. There's parentage. That's how all our kids arrive, regardless of what your older sister has told you, all growing up, that you were in fact born. If you, anybody have an older sister who claimed otherwise? I had it all the time. I was hatched, I was dropped off down the, I don't know, all kinds of, she was terrible to me. But that a child would be born, we came into this world physically, but then the, the prophet says, but a son would be given. And that word given's got a wide range of application, but what it's really inferring here is that there is a divinity that's introduced here, that, that God has provided that in His providence He has, He has made this to be out of His ha- hand and His care. That it isn't just the kind of thing that we said, well, he was born, he's going to be a good guy, he's the best leader we've ever seen, all the talent, all that sort of stuff. But divinity had a place in this, that this is the Son of God. Last week as we got into Isaiah's prophecy and just the two key verses we focused in in chapter 9, we understood that the title of Wonderful Counselor brought us to a place to understand that the Christmas story really started in the Garden of Eden. That we weren't going to jump into our Advent season here at Faith in the the, uh, the manger in Bethlehem because we needed to set up why? Why did Christ have to come the way he did? What was the need for mankind? And so we went back to the Garden. We understood. That as Adam and Eve were going about their existence in, in perfection and walking in communion and fellowship with the Lord, that they disobeyed his commands, they went outside of his will, and that the relationship was fractured. And we said that the result, the immediate result of that was that they went and hid in the dark. And ever since then, mankind has been trying to find a shadow to get away with their sin, to try to keep their 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 uh, their sin away from the gaze, away from the eyes of the Lord. And that, as Isaiah prophesied, that a light will come. That that light was going to shine in darkness, and no darkness would ever be able to defeat it. And the and the people of Israel and of Judah were living in intense darkness at the time of the prophecy. So when he started saying, "Light will come," They started having to evaluate, is this a good thing or a bad thing? It, in some ways, we're tired of tripping over the furniture. We're trying, tired of stubbing our toe, trying to get around through this darkness. But in other ways, it's kind of nice to be left alone. I don't know if I'm ready for the accountability that will come with the arrival of this light. You see, the people then are the same as the people now. We have these things going on in our hearts where we go, I know there's hope. I know there's something for me to respond to. I know that there's a gift coming, but it comes at a price. Am I willing to surrender to that? Don't let anybody tell you you come to Christ without surrender. We have so much of this going on in our nation today, and it's been building for decades and decades in the church, that it's like Jesus is an add-on. You can still go in the direction you're going, but bring Jesus along with you, and everything will be okay. What we actually see as a presentation of the gospel is, if we have been walking around in darkness, why would we say, come along with me in this darkness? We say, I am turning towards the light. I am embracing the light. Whatever you shine on me and call me to do, I surrender. So we come to Isaiah chapter nine, beginning in verse two, and here is the word that the people walking in darkness heard. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shown. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Here's an important verse for us in our context of what we're talking about this morning. Verse 5. For every boot of tramping warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. The reason why this is important is because it, it gives us an echo of battle and of, of victory and of a conquering warrior. Verse 6. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may recall last week that we took the first of the four titles given to us of the coming king. We took the first of the titles of the one who would be born to us as a child, but would be given to us as the son of God. And we said that wonderful really meant that God shows up in in only a way that God can. That the things that he's going to do are of such miraculous power that we're left with our jaws on the floor, we're left in the audience with our knees shaking, and yet at the same time, we have no desire to escape the magnificent display we just saw. We're afraid of it, we're moved by it, we're shaken to our core, but it's the only place that we can and want to be. This is who God is, not the one who just comes alongside of, uh, alongside of us and, 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 and it advises us and gives us nice little counsel and these things. But if he's a wonderful counselor, his advice, his guidance, his, his wisdom comes with earth-shaking power. This is who God is, this is who he's always been, and this is who he will always be. And as a counselor, he is an advisor to himself. Because there's no better ideas that come than that from the king of kings and the Lord of the lords. He is the one with the best ideas. So Isaiah is giving us four names. We've looked at one. These four names represent offices or, or roles or attributes of who Jesus is and who he will be revealed to be at the birth and throughout his ministry. And we need these four names to give us at least these four names to give us a a handle on who God is. You've probably heard it suggested many, many times over and over again. But if you want a very interesting study going through the word of God is look up the names of God and see how each name has some unique characteristic or attribute that we need to understand the character of God. That a simple title won't cut it because he's more than just one title. And in a similar fashion in the New Testament, we've been given four gospel accounts and each gospel account written by a different disciple of Jesus wrote the, about the same story, about the same subject, about the same central figure, but brought their own perspective to it so that you and I could have this rounded out, this balanced understanding of who Jesus is and how he walked on this earth. We need all of these things to to color out the picture for us. And so Matthew in his gospel, he focuses for us on a fulfillment of prophecies, What you'll see so often in the book of Matthew is a statement, as the prophet said. So he wanted that, that observant listener, the one who was looking for, how does he tie into God's plan? He wanted that to be evident in his gospel record. He was bridging the prophecies to the arrival of the child who was born and the son who was given. Mark is going to shed light on Jesus as the suffering servant or the redemption or the, re- the ransom for our sins so that we have this very personal understanding of the place that Jesus took for us to pay for our sins. And Mark's going to find ways telling those same stories to highlight that aspect. Luke comes at it as a display of the universality of the gospel. He wants the gospel to be seen as this broad appeal that both Jews and Gentiles, this story applies to you, that Jesus has arrived to pay for your sins, whoever you are. And so often we point people to John who are new in their faith or who have questions about whether or not God is real because the book of John has this evangelistic appeal of the mighty God to the entire world. And so John even has a unique aspect of this. And so we, we have the help of this balance with these four gospels and how they're displayed for us. I was thinking about this this week and not sure quite how to articulate this, but it's like you go to... To paint a picture and you try to, sometimes we try to paint who the Lord is with one color, right? And no one color can contain the image of who God is. We try to praise him with a song and what, the reason why we need thousands upon thousands of songs that sometimes we think are saying the same thing, but as we look into them, and we apply them to our circumstance or one hits us out of the blue, it's like no one song can contain all the praise that the Lord deserves, And so we need this kind of color. We need this music to help inform us of who God is. And so when Isaiah says that he's the wonderful counselor, he also says he's the mighty God. And there's a great relationship between these two titles. In the Hebrew, what's going on with the word mighty is what you would expect. It's strong. It's powerful. But there 's an element of victory there's there 's a champion there 's a hero he 's the image of of what you would picture in the movie of climbing up the the mountain of battle and holding a sword high and everyone 's looking saying, "I know who the victor is, I know who 's won the fight. This is what 's wrapped up in this description of who God is. He is the mighty god and and the in the, the Hebrew at the time they 're going. All right, that, that about sums up what we're expecting. It's what Jeremiah says, what Daniel says, what the prophets have said. It's what we've heard about with the Red Sea and everything. We we have no problem believing that the mighty God is a conquering warrior. In fact, as a Hebrew listener and one who is living in this national identity crisis, that's what we want. We want him to come. We want the government to rest on his shoulders. We want his his, his divine power and his wisdom to be on display that's a leader we can get behind. Furthering out some of this uh, this, this battle cry and this this championing uh, heroic behavior, Isaiah spells out just a couple chapters later. In chapter 11, he says, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, we talked about this one time back, I think in the summer where we were saying that the, the awesome power of God could be displayed in just saying, let there be light. That with who, who of us could, could create anything just as we imagined it, even with our hands, with all the tools that we could ever uh, expect and all that. And God just says, let it be. And there it is. The breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Verse five, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Much later in his prophecy in chapter 42, Isaiah says the Lord goes out like a mighty man or some translations would say like a like a victorious man or a mighty warrior, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. So the expectation is he's coming armored up, sword in hand, shield in the other hand, and we're going to be able to hide behind him and he's going to do all the battling and we're going to arrive at, the, at the, the exact pinnacle of where we think we should be as a nation and God's going to do it all. He's done it before. We trust his promises. He can do it again. But the prophets didn't quite understand as they were writing what form this warrior would take. They had their own expectations. I, I can picture, you can probably picture it too, you know, Isaiah's sitting at his kitchen table, he's working about chapter nine. It's about where he's at in his book. Mrs. Isaiah comes down, gives him his cup of coffee and says, so where are you at? What's going on in the, in the word that you're getting from the Lord today? And he's like, well, a lot of weird stuff's coming out of my pen today. You know, the Lord's speaking to me, and I'm, I'm writing about all these things. I'm, I'm encouraged. I'm, in, I'm inspired by this. I'm excited because, I mean, it really sounds like we're going to win this one. So it's pretty cool. Well, when do you think he's going to arrive? I'm not quite sure. What do you think he's going to look like? I can't tell that either. But I kind of think he's going to look like Thor, but I'm not sure. That's how all our heroes are supposed to look. And so I don't know how he's gonna, how he's gonna show up, but man, I feel really good about our prospects. Alright, honey, keep going. Got about 40 or so more chapters left to go, so keep going. How'd she know that? Women know everything. Alright, you direct your movie your way, I'll direct it mine. Peter gives us a glimpse on this in his first letter in chapter one. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours and inquired carefully. I'm sorry, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Even for them, they were faithful to write down what God had said as prophets. But even for them, I'm not sure how this is going to play out. Looking back over the last couple thousand years, though, we have the benefit of understanding that the one who arrived humbly in Bethlehem, who was almost unnoticed, except for extreme miraculous events that the Lord had put in motion, that he was the one that would calm the sea, that as the disciples are rocking about in a raging sea and he's asleep down at the bottom of the boat because he's not troubled by everything that everyone else is feeling. That they have to, the scriptures would say that they disturbed him in his sleep. So he had to go up. How do you feel when you're disturbed in your sleep? Are you up like, okay, blessings, everybody. Let's deal with this storm because I feel like the Lord's going to show up today. I could picture Jesus kind of going, guys, why'd you wake me up for this? Shut up, waves. And then he went back to sleep. Like we all kind of stumbling our way. All right. And they were amazed jaws on the on the floor on the deck of the boat who is this that even the winds and the seas obey him we have the the benefit we have the privilege of looking back and saying this is the one who would come up to the grave of his friend and in the shortest verse in the bible john 11:35 we see that jesus wept because his friend had died i think he also wept because it it stung and it was so close to home because of the effect of sin of all mankind took his friend. And he saw that over all of humanity. This is what happens to us because of what happened in the garden. And as he was weeping, he wasn't done with Lazarus. And so to show the mighty works of God, to show that he was going to be the conquering warrior, he said, Lazarus, get out of there. And then out stumbles his buddy, all mummified, wrapped up out of a deep, dark cave. And everyone's amazed. How does he do this? Because of hindsight, we get to see that the child who would be born and the son that would be given would be the one that would endure the suffering and the torture, the abuse of the cross. And in the midst of all of that, have the wherewithal to look at a disciple and say, go take care of my mom. While he's bleeding out, while he's suffering with, with spikes through his wrist and his ankles and all the torture that he went with, with everything exposed and everything, he still said, there's still work to be done here. I want you to look after her. Or he was able to, to cry out in his moment of agony, Lord, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing to me. To endure the pain and the suffering and going through all that is, is mind-blowing enough. But to have the wherewithal to still do the most amazing work that the Lord sent him to do in the midst of it, that's amazing. That's jaw-dropping to all the onlookers. They would have said, how is this even taking place? And of course, we know that the one who would be predicted to arrive would eventually even after dying a cruel death, would roll the stone away and walk out of the grave. Be victorious over death, thus signaling that everything he said in his ministry was true, but also giving you and I the victory over death, that even if we experience a temporary physical death, that the promise would be ours, that those who walk in Christ would never experience a separation from God. That we will literally live forever. So the mighty acts of God in the Old Testament seem to be uh, wrapped around a national security. They seem to be up against physical enemies that that people could see borders and countries and, and all these things and kingdoms. And God would show up in mighty ways. And we've seen all those stories. But the same God who did those things now was going to attack a different kind of enemy by bringing his mighty son to the forefront John 10.10 tells us, this is what Jesus said. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So he's giving us a clue here who my enemy is, who my enemy always has been, is Satan himself. But I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. For whatever reason, a song was going through my head when I was getting ready for this message. And it goes back to, I was embarrassed to see that it went back to 1989 it's just terrible it's been that long michael w smith pioneer of uh, christian music for us those of us that have been in the church and walking in our faith for a long time for the most part appreciate the contributions that michael w smith has had to popular christian music and things and and uh has survived all the decades still looking like he's 22 it's just not really fair But he wrote a song in 1989 called Secret Ambition. And with his cool style and raspy voice and everything, he uh, sang a, a really profound song about the mystery of what Jesus came to do in Secret Ambition. It says, it reads like this, Young man up on the hillside, teaching new ways, each word winning them over each heart, a kindled flame. Old men watch from the outside, guarding their prey. The, the religious leaders, the ones who didn't want Jesus to take anybody from them, they were guarding their uh, they were guarding their prey. Threatened by the voice of the paragon, leading their lambs away. His rage shaking the temple. His word to the wise. His hand healing on the Sabbath day. His love wearing no disguise. Well, some say death to the radical. He's way out of line. Some say, praise be the miracle God sends, a blessed sign. A blessed sign for troubled times. The chorus of this song says, nobody knew his secret ambition. Nobody knew his claim to fame. He broke the old rules steeped in tradition. He tore the holy veil away. Questioning those in powerful position, running to those who called his name. But nobody knew his secret ambition was to give his life away. Jesus came to defeat the agents of death. Our greatest enemy, Satan, being the number one target, but our closest enemy, our own flesh, being our biggest weakness. So what is God's might in our context? Are we wrestling with simple matters of national identity like the children of Israel were? Or is it something much more personal, something much closer to home? You see, you and I have a tendency to question God's might based on what we think we see. Think back just a couple weeks ago to our sermon out of uh, Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph, when he was, had, he was understanding that he had a very limited perspective of what the wicked were allowed to get away with. But we think we see things the way they are. We have this limited perspective. We see suffering going on all around the world. And then somebody comes in and asks a question of doubt. So if God was so great, so mighty, so powerful, why doesn't he stop this? So there's the suffering we see everywhere else. But then there's a suffering that we most often think about, and that's the stuff close to home. Why isn't he doing anything about mine? or injustices, or any of the other things that we see, and it starts to plant these seeds of doubt that maybe he's not as strong as we thought he was. Maybe the prophet got it all wrong. I was picturing a sword, a shield, armored up. I wanted Thor to come and wipe it all out, and he hasn't arrived. You see, what we suffer with, what we struggle with, what our, what our sinful hearts have a tendency to produce is that we want God's muscle at our beck and call. You're strong. You're, you're capable. I have a personal relationship with the most muscular, strong savior of the world. So I need you now. But God's strength is exercised through long suffering, which is not a word we like. There's, there's two parts of that word that I hate. Long and suffering. As I look at this now, I'm like, I don't like anything about that word. It's balanced. His strength is exercised through long suffering and meekness. And meekness is strength under control. And I can't wait to get to that part when we talk about the prince of peace. Because so often people think he's the prince of passivity. When he doesn't act according to our demands, we think he's just incapable. I'm going to read you a passage from a book called The Silver Chair. It's one of C.S. Lewis's books in the series The Chronicles of Narnia. In it, a girl named Jill walks into an opening in the forest. She's very thirsty. Not far away, she sees a stream of cool, clear water. But instead of rushing forward to drink, she hesitates in fear. Because lying there on the ground next to the stream is a huge lion, Aslan, the Christ figure in the story. As she ponders what to do, he speaks. Are you not thirsty? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink. May I, um, could I, would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only, only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will will you promise not to uh, do anything to me if I do come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear. Coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. We want the God of wonderful counsel. We want a a message that comes to our ears and to our hearts that says you're going in the right direction. You're a good boy. You're a good girl. You're doing things just the way you need to. That's what we interpret as good counsel. And this arrival of a mighty God who's who's intimidating, who's cr- creates a little bit of fear in us, we're not sure which way this is going to go, is unsettling to us. Good counsel without the power to act on the knowledge is meaningless. Great power without good counsel is abusive until we learn to expect the God who is, this is what we said at the outset, we will continually be disappointed when we don't get the God we want. As a wonderful counselor, he is the one with the best ideas. So let me ask you a question. Do you have a better idea for how a family should run? Do you have a better idea the way that society should work? Do you have better ideas on, on how to manage wealth? Do you have better ideas on how to raise children? Do you have better ideas on finding hope and purpose in life? Or would you be one like so many of us that would admit all of my best ideas have got me to the frustration and the hurt that I'm in right now? A wonderful counselor is not struggling for finding good ideas. But the mighty God has the power to implement his great ideas. So I ask you, how successful have you been when you make a plan and you say, this is where I plan and intend to go. How successful have you been at seeing all those plans through? I can tell you for me. That little phrase, the best laid plans of mice and men come to my fore all the time. How successful have you been at making even your incomplete plans, the ones that aren't as good as what the wonderful counselor had, and still being able to see those through? We'd have to admit, I can't even make my bad ideas come to fruition half the time. The best place for us to start trusting in the wonderful counsel of the mighty God is to align our expectations to who he is not who you want him to be. I'm going to ask you to stand if you would. Let's close our time in prayer on our feet before the Lord. God, I just want to thank you, Lord, for giving us the truth of your counsel, even the stuff that stings, even the stuff that I'm wrestling with, even the pieces that don't go down so easily. I thank you, Lord, for putting your might on display, even the strength that scares me, even the power that intimidates me, Lord, all of those things are made available for your children. And so I just pray, God, that you would help me, help all of these folks here this morning to walk in worship that, that worships the God who is not the one I've tried making in my own fashion. May we celebrate the, the arrival of the child who is both wonderful and mighty, the God who is king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.